called well Bobby's coming out. I just wanted to mention that these guys practice this like one time under one. A couple of these guys were sight reading it this morning in rehearsal and then played it that good. They, these guys are amazing. Aren't they? All right. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be in the uh, Scripture today. And man, everything's so extra today. That's pretty good. It had extra uh, pastries in the um, coffee area and uh, extra folks up here breaking down stuff. And it was good. And uh, it should be that way because this is the heartbeat of our faith, our understanding of who Christ is and what he did. You'll turn there with me, Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 22 through the end of the chapter there, and this is when uh, Paul goes to Athens, Greece, and while he's there, he begins to preach the scripture, says, Jesus and the resurrection, and it was alien to the people that he was preaching to, and so they said, we want to hear you, you know, later on on this matter, and he goes to a place called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill it's called there, and it was a place where philosophers stood and held forth and described their belief system and then they were sort of judged by uh, informal jury of their peers. And so Paul has the opportunity to go to the Areopagus at the basically intellectual center of the world in his day. And while he's there, he has the opportunity to proclaim a message that they had no idea of who he was describing or what he was talking about. It was new to them. And here's what he said in his message to the people there on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation." so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for its timeless truth, its relevance to right here uh, today where we sit and what we need. And we pray that you'll speak to us this morning from your word. Draw us to yourself and open up our hearts and our ears 
and our understanding. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today our message is called Death Cancelled, the Easter promise of a new life. And cancelled is a familiar cultural idea now, being cancelled. People are cancelled or taken out of circulation and put on a shelf if their behavior deviates from some perceived cultural standard of virtue. That's what they say. You've been cancelled. We're not going to listen to you anymore. You're taken out of circulation. If a, pu- a very public person, a, a celebrity, says or does something particularly scandalous or egregious, uh, they're said to be canceled. The Urban Dictionary defines uh, this idea this way, that you're made irrelevant on the Internet due to current drama. That's what it means to be canceled. You've been made ir- irrelevant. So when we think about the idea of death being canceled, what does it mean that death is uh, canceled? Jesus' resurrection canceled death. That's the idea that we're talking about in this passage. But how? What does it mean that his resurrection canceled death? When Paul came here to Athens, Greece, and he's, as we say, at the intellectual center of the world, and he begins to talk about Jesus and resurrection, and they hear him preaching, some high-minded philosophers wanted to cancel Paul. They're like, no, no, we're not... We don't, uh, some of them call them a seed picker. So, and a seed picker was somebody that just like gathered little bits of this and that and cobbled it together and made some philosophy out of it. And the, the Greeks, you know, their ideas prevail. You still learn about them in school. So he's standing here before these intellectual, you know, high-minded philosophers and they want to cancel him. But his message is, here's what really happened, is that the power of death in Jesus' cross and resurrection has been nullified. That's what it means to be canceled. It's nullified. The effects of death for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ have been turned into hope. We have hope now because of who Jesus is and what he did in demonstrating his power over the grave by coming out of the tomb on the third day alive. And so let's look at the passage and see what the scripture teaches us about how Jesus canceled death. First in the scripture we see that he canceled mere religion. He he looks around him. Paul has arrived in Athens and while he's there he basically goes on a tour of the city. And the Bible says, as he walked around, he observed their shrines. They had erected shrines to gods. And he said while he was there, he even saw a shrine erected to the unknown God. Just in case we leave anybody out. You know, we erected a shrine here. And Paul says, that's the God. Or he uses it as a launching point to say, this is the God that I want to talk to you about. The one that you... Uh, or as you worship, are ignorant of. That's really what he means. He doesn't mean you're worshiping this God, it's just ignorant. He says, no, as you worship, you're ignorant of the true God. He just says it in a nice way. But, but he looks around and he sees that these people are steeped in religion. And yet they don't know the true God. And so he preaches to them. Think about what it must be like to go to the, you know, the intellectual center of the world and put yourself at risk of being gut punched. That's what he did to stand up. Why would he do that? Why would he put himself at risk in that sense of being embarrassed and, uh, you know, of, of being canceled? Because of conviction. He had conviction. 
He believed and therefore he spoke. That's what the Bible says, that the psalm writer said, I believed and therefore I spoke. And then later on, this same person, Paul, said, I also believed, therefore we speak. They had conviction that what they said was real, that these were the truths that God himself had revealed to humanity. And so he spoke out of his conviction, and that's what it takes not to be cowed into silence in a world that sometimes opposes the message that you and I hold as true, is we have to have conviction and speak up, and to believe, and therefore to speak, to speak out, and to live out our faith among others. And so he takes a stand for his faith. And it's interesting when you read this passage that in expressing his faith, he doesn't do it in a way that's insulting to his listeners. I mean, he could have, but that's not the approach that he takes. He says, I noticed that in every way you're very religious. And it's not an insult, it's a kind of a compliment or a way of opening the door for a conversation. And we can learn a lot from that. You know, in in the way that we are with people, it does no one uh, any good for us to treat them as though they're our enemies, you know, uh, God wants people to come into relationship with Him through faith. And so uh, I've used the word winsome before, people don't always know it. But it means to have a certain kind of, um, of gentleness with people that we're talking to. And understanding. And to look at them the same way that we understood ourselves at one point. Alienated from God. Separated from God. And yet God loved us. Before we did a single religious thing. And the Bible says God demonstrated His love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Didn't wait for us to get it together. Christ came to us at the very point of our need. And so as He expressed His convictions, there's a certain kind of kindness and attractiveness that He he shares. But He doesn't shy away from telling the truth at the same time. So he acknowledges as he preaches to them that everyone has a certain bent toward religion. Everybody. He says, I, I notice here, even though this is a, the philosophical you know, ground zero in the world, he says, I still notice that you're very religious. These people had a bent toward religion. And, to, and the idea of what religion really is is trying to understand what life means. What does life mean? What's, what is fundamentally life about? And every, everybody has different ideas about that, but people are all religious in some sense. So some people believe that life is a futile quest. You know, they talk about existentialism, the idea that life basically doesn't mean anything. You just put one foot in front of the other, you try to grab uh, moments of joy and meaning where you can, but in the end it doesn't mean anything at all. And some people believe that you just, you know, go through your life and you do the best you can, but there's no way to clearly understand what life's about. And then other people will build sophisticated, complicated systems of belief, like the audience that he addresses when he goes to Athens. These people were very religious, and yet they didn't know the God who had revealed himself through Israel and who had come ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about Jesus, God's Son, God in human form, who came to pay the debt of our, our sin. And so, he, but he notices everybody is trying to understand what life means, to assign meaning to life. And I don't care who you are, at some level in your life, the same thing is true about you, and it's true about me. 
We're trying to understand what life means. We're trying to know what, it, what it's for. And it, does it have meaning? Is there a goal involved? In, and is it something that every person can understand? And the Bible answers that emphatically, yes, that there's a clear meaning to life because God himself came here and told us what it means. I read a book, I've talked about this here once before, by a guy named David Zoll in the past year called um, Seculosity. And he takes the idea and he says that North American culture is headed more and more toward secularism. And more, fewer and fewer people as a normal way of behaving worship. They just do other things. And in that book called Seculosity, he says what really has happened is that people have taken um, temporary things and they've assigned ultimate meaning to them. So that now what happens is that people will assign ultimate meaning to recreation or being healthy, or food, being a foodie, you know, or something like that, or parenting, or their vocation. But they, they take something that's temporary, and they sign, assign an eternal meaning to it. And the problem with that is that none of those things can bear the weight of our worship. They're not, they're not what you are meant for. You and I were meant for something more and Paul saw that their religion in, in Athens was ill-formed. God wasn't, uh, God, they, that he was declared wasn't represented among the pantheon of little g-gods. They had little g-gods. You know what I mean? Little g-o-d-s. That's what they had. But represented among the pantheon of gods that they worshipped was not the true God. And so he plucks up courage and he begins to speak to them about the one and the only God. And, it, and what he does here is gives a sermon. And when you read the sermon, it is simple. He declares basically fundamental uh, Christian truths in the sermon that he gives to them. But we should pay attention to the sermon because what we notice is at the end of it, as people listen, some of them, even as simple as it was, committed their lives to what he was saying. So in his sermon, he takes the opportunity where they said, we don't know anything about this God. He says, well, let me tell you about that God. That God, the one whom you worship, as you worship, there's ignorance surrounding him, is the creator of everything. He says, that's who this God is that I'm declaring to you. He existed before everything and he spoke everything into being. Out of his power. There was nothing... And God made the material world out of His power. And we either start with matter and uh, something that's inanimate, and you, and you multiply the chances and time infinitely, and you say out of that somehow came intelligence and order and something as complicated as a human. Or you say behind all life is a designer. And the Bible says behind all life is a designer, is an intelligent God who created everything, who was before everything. And create, and that's what he says in his message to them. When he preaches here, he says, God made the world and everything in it. That's pretty plain. Amen. Before everything. So when we try to understand the meaning of life, we have to start with God. He says he's the, the Lord of heaven and earth. To be Lord means he's the master. He's the one that we answer to. He's the one that we voluntarily subject ourselves to. Willingly, we worship Him. He says He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And, and so, if we want to understand, am I worshiping this God? We have to ask ourselves things like, am I a praying person? 
Am I a person whose life is characterized by prayer? Because if I believe that this God exists, then I'm commanded to interact with Him in a relationship and to pray to Him. How would I know if if I'm worshiping God according to His self-revelation? Because I'm a praying person. Because I'm a person who deliberately worships Him, who puts my life in, in relationships with other people as a witness to who He is. Because it's commanded by God. That's how I would know. So in his sermon, he says he's the master, he's the Lord of everyone. And, and so, am I living a self-directed life or am I living a, a life of surrender to God? Am I trying to discover His will through His revealed Word? That's how I know. Whether I'm worshiping this, this God or I'm not. Do I have peace because I've been forgiven? You know, that's one of the realities that blesses me is the, is the fact that I know that in the cross, Jesus took my sin and now I have peace because I'm forgiven because Jesus was, He took my punishment and He took your punishment. And, and so how do I know? Am I a worshiping person according to this kind of God that uh, Paul describes? Well, if I am, I'm going to be a, a person who has peace because the... Uh, The rebellion I was in toward God, at one point I repented and turned around and put my full confidence in Him and He bore up my sin and then demonstrated His power by being raised from the dead. Do I confess Jesus publicly? Do people know who I am as a person of faith? That's how I know if I'm worshiping this God because Jesus said Himself, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. He says, but if you... You know, if you're open, if you confess me before men, he says, I'll also confess you before my Father which is in heaven. How do I know? Am I worshiping this God of Scripture? Is your behavior like that? Is the way of life that you've committed to like that? He said, as he preaches, he's given these folks these ideas that we confess him as Lord. And he says, God doesn't need anything either. The God that I'm talking about, he says, if you build a shrine to him and you bring him some kind of offering, he doesn't need it. The God that made everything doesn't need anything, he says. He says the God that sustains everything isn't sustained by anything that you could provide for him or give to him. You remember who Jesus said he was when he was on earth? He said, I'm the bread of life. He said, if anybody hungers and thirsts for rightness or righteousness, he says, that person will be filled. Because He's the bread of life. He doesn't need anything. He, he has everything and we need Him. That's what the Scripture says. So when Jesus, Paul talks about how Jesus canceled death, He cancels mere religion. What He offers, in fact, uh, we did an ad this week. It was interesting that Cody uh, put on Facebook. And if you share, if you pay for an ad on Facebook, it goes to you know a bigger audience. And it's just kind of interesting that it, there were so many people that on our paid ad kept, you have to make it public in their comments. So Cody and I are both deleting comments all the time that are just mean and ugly. And, and some of it is, uh, one of them was, I'm trying to, religion is poison, hashtag religion is poison. They, somebody commented on our uh, paid for ad <laughs> and we deleted it. But I thought, I think religion is poison too. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about Jesus Christ and a relationship that a person can have with Him by faith. So we're not talking about religion. Religion does kill. Religion is poisonous. I would totally agree with that, even though I did delete the comment. 
But Jesus cancels mere religion, and what He offers instead is Himself. This is eternal life, the Bible says, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what the Bible says, knowing God, being in a relationship with Him through faith. It's transformational. That's what Paul is proclaiming here to these people. A personal God who we can know, who knows us. Secondly, the Scripture here teaches that Jesus canceled meaningless searching. We're talking about life being a search for truth at times for uh, human beings and trying to make sense of life. And He gives life an overarching meaning. An overarching meaning. When you read Israel's history, you find out that they go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And they say that what happened there, God gave us the template and the building block for all of life. So you start there in the uh, Garden of Eden. Those people were made for a relationship with God, not because God needed anything, but God made people and He made a high order of being to worship Him. And the Bible says, out of one blood. What does that mean? That He started with one man and one woman and people, the entire world. Put every, every other person in a family tree to those people. That everybody uh, else that followed them, God created out of two human beings. And there are all sorts of implications uh, 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 from that. And, and implications like that racism is idiotic. That's one of the implications. Implication that the Bible says, by one man sin entered the world and by uh, sin death and death spread to all in that all have sinned. The Bible says that if, if we lose this idea, what we lose is what the Bible says is wrong with the world too. Because the Bible says what's wrong with the world is it's fallen and in rebellion. And I don't know a single person that doesn't look at the world and go, something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with it. It's broken. The Bible says it's broken because of man's fallenness and because of sin. And that God came to rescue us out of that and to pull us out of that. And He did it through Jesus Christ. So he says, from one person, uh, there in verse 26, from one blood, from uh, these humans that God originated uh, the race of man from, he said, God, this is the kind of God we're talking about, the God that made people in his image, which means that we're unique among all creatures. And you have pets, and pets are great, but they're not people, are they? We feel completely different about them. We might talk to them, but if they start talking back, that's just like weird, you know. But people are unique. You don't send your cat off to college. You don't save to send him off to college. And If you did, it would be a waste of time. People are unique. God made us different. You're special. You're a higher order of anything else that God put on the earth. And He did that so that you could have a relationship with Him. We're made in His image. We're made intelligent. We're made able to worship. We're, able, we're complex. We're uh, capable of com complex thought and accomplishment. Uniquely fashioned to know God. He, he talks here about the fact that... We, he says there's an overarching purpose. You see it in the fact that He made people. You see it in the fact that He uh, pre-appointed their times and boundaries or their seasons. So we, when we look at things like education or science or humanities or art he touches on all of that in this passage and basically what he says is the smart there are scientists that are incredibly intelligent but all they're doing is discovering what god 
put into, encrypted into the order there. It's, they're smart, they're discovering, but they're not God. God is God. And He created this, and it, science is just a way of uh, people using the intelligence that God gave them to process and understand the world that He made. And, and so he says the seasons, we think about astronomy. You know, I've read somewhere a person talked about the planet that you live on. It goes around the sun in elliptical orbit and it's tilted so that we get seasons. We get seasons and tides and all the things that happen. The moon around the earth gives us tides. And it, it, we look at the way that the world is made. It's enveloped in a canopy of gases that are perfect for keeping us alive. And we look at that and a person that can go, oh, it's all accidental. You know, just a big cosmic accident is all, all that is. No, the writer here and in other places in the scripture says it's an evidence of a caring, benevolent God. A God who made a world that had order. And, and uh, so he, he says the seasons and the, uh, and the geography. And you know, we often hear about geopolitics and the way that countries behave toward each other and, and the Bible says that the, in the book of Job, here's what God said. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. God is sovereign and God has a, a plan and a purpose for this world. Paul cites an Epicurean poet in his message here. He says, certain of your poets have said that we're God's offspring. So he, he includes in this conversation about the meaning of life. He says, yeah, you can even discover God in the arts. You're making an effort at that to know God and to understand that He, he did make us. They, of course, were not, uh, you know, uh, talking about the biblical God, but He borrows from their understanding to say there is a God and we have the capacity to know Him. We were created to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. And so He's not far from any of us, the Bible says, which is an interesting thought. That God's not far from any of us. In fact, we could say God is as close as a prayer, as close as crying out. That's how close God is to anyone. And the reason that that's true is because Jesus became a human. God became a human. And God had a history here. The whole purpose of which was to rescue us and bring us to Himself so that I can pray to Him. And the Scripture says things about Him. The Bible says here, that so that, why did God do that? Why did He give order to the world? Why did He put people here? So that we might seek the Lord. That's what it says. If a person is trying to discover the meaning of life, here's what God says the meaning of life is. The meaning of life, life is that you should seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Listen to all the things the Bible says. It says in the Gospel of John, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who's in the bosom or uh, most closely connected to the Father, He has declared Him, or He has revealed Him plainly. The word that's used there is a, a word that means He's given us an accurate description of God. If you go and read the Gospels and you read about Jesus, I bet He's different than you think He is. Because a lot of times people think about Jesus without really knowing what Jesus is like. And what you see in Jesus is that there's this uh, tenderness that he has. That there's this desire that he has. That his heart, that one of the last things that happened in his human journey was he looks over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, you who uh, killed the prophets, how much I'd like you to come to me, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. 
And his heart's broken. And that's what God's heart is like. We see him in, in God's heart in Jesus. And I think he's different than people think sometimes. That his willingness is clearly seen in the cross. The Bible says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who carefully seek Him. That's the thread you see in Scripture. God rewards the person that carefully seeks Him. And another place the Bible puts it like this. It says, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, it says, you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. So that's the question, I think, for a person who, who's saying, I want to find meaning. Well, God says that meaning starts with a person who acknowledges God and seeks Him and cries out to Him. One of the Ten Commandments that Scripture uh, talks about here, the fact that Paul, as he observed their uh, attempts at worship, they were creating shrines and they were creating images. And you know that one of the Ten Commandments says you... Uh, shall not fashion an image to be uh, worshipped, that we're not to uh, make idols and not some shoddy representation of God, yet the world's full of idols and attempts to understand God that are sub-Christian and not worthy of the God uh, who's revealed Himself. And in Jesus we encounter this perfect clarification of God. And that's the claim of Scripture and the testimony of millions and millions of Christians for thousands and thousands of years. And the last idea in this passage that we see is that Jesus canceled death's power. Beginning there in verse 30. Look at what the Scripture says. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Look at those two words that follow. But now. But now, it says. God has patiently overlooked, it says, these the, the ignorance. That's how he described their effort at worship. He says, but now, here's what God says you must do. You must repent. Amen. You must repent. That means that we change our mind in the direction that our life is going. There comes a time when people have to take a stand. Jesus said in the Gospels, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever doesn't gather to me scatters. We have to take a stand. We have to... Uh, Commit to Him. Commit our life to Him and to repent. To repent means that we turn our back on the notion of a life without God and we surrender. And I've shared here before that there was a time in my life where I surrendered to God. Everything that I knew. And then the rest of my life since that time has been an effort to continually surrender my life to God and to be aligned with His revealed purpose. And that's, I think, what repentance means in a nutshell. And I've had people ask this question. I think it's a, uh, a question we should, should consider. Is there any reason you would not be willing to receive God's free gift of everlasting life? That's what God offers us is everlasting life, freely given as a gift. And it's a, a part of our repentance and our faith. And we should think about that. The Bible says here there is a day appointed. Look at the Scripture here. It says in uh, verse 31, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. People now are too sophisticated to believe in judgment. We want to rewrite the world and uh, have it work out the way we want it to, but the Bible says that God has said it is appointed 
to people to die once. And after this, the judgment. After this, scrutiny. Scrutiny. Where God looks at a, a person's life because He's a personal God and He's created us. And He made us for Himself. And the Bible says there is a day. There is a day that he, He's going to judge the world in righteousness. But look at what it also says. By, there is a, a way approved. There's a person approved. He's, how is God going to judge the world? He's going to judge the world just this way. Have you committed your life and yourself to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Have you surrendered to Him? Have you cried out to Him and expressed your faith in Him? That He is God's righteousness. He is God's rightness. How do I know if I'm right with God? It's the fact that there's already a price that's been paid that we just say yes to. And, and we surrender our, our life to Him. But Jesus is God's standard of judgment. We think, we think people are worse than other people, and, and probably they are. There are people that are better people than, than some people, but the Bible says all people are ruined for perfection. You don't know a perfect person. I don't. I'm not a perfect person. I don't know any perfect people, except the one who died on the ha uh, behalf of all the imperfect people. And He did that so that God could judge Him and not you. That's what the Bible teaches salvation is. Is that we cry out and we say, we live a grateful life, but we, we cry out in faith and we put our faith in God who came here to take our place. He says there's a day appointed, there's a way approved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. And then the Bible says there's evidence provided. Do you want evidence that this is true? He says, well, here's the evidence that God proved this by raising Him from the dead. Amen. There's your evidence, He says. This is what the convincing uh, testimony of everybody that knew Jesus. And the, and the Bible says if, if you uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that at one point Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Publicly, they saw Him resurrected after He had been placed into the tomb. That is what today is about. And the idea that Peter saw Him, and the idea that the women that raced to the tomb that morning saw that the tomb was empty, and then that Jesus later appeared and had food with people, and hung out with people, and then 40 days later ascended up into heaven. And the Bible says that's what today is about is the fact that if you want evidence that what God did in putting Jesus on a cross was effective for your salvation, it is the resurrection. It's the fact that He was raised from the dead and it gives evidence to the fact that Jesus, Jesus paid for your sin. And we put our faith in Him. And here were the responses of those that listened. Some mocked. The Bible says some mocked. That's what we saw on Facebook in our ad. Is it people that were showing up and being scoffers and mockers? And some people mocked. But it, and, and some people postponed. Some people said, yeah, we hear you. We'll talk to you about it again another day. But the Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today, this is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. While you're listening, while you can, the Bible says. So some postponed. They said, we'll hear you about it another day. But some believed. Among them, uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a, a woman named Damaris, and others. It says they believed. What did they believe? They believed this simple message that Paul preached. It's right there in the text in front of us. 
That's what they believed. Let me ask you a question as we close. If they heard that simple message and they believed, why couldn't you? There's not another message. I mean, there are other places that it's stated by other people in different contexts, but they're not going to say anything different. This is the message. This is what God says salvation amounts to. So why couldn't you? Today, I believe God is calling us to surrender, to come to Him by faith. And the Scripture says here, resurrection is a game changer. If it's true that Jesus is resurrected and alive, it should shift our perspective if we believe what we believe. If we believe that life is more than cradle-to-grave existence, we won't live like the Epicureans. You remember the line about them was that they basically were living for now. They were living for temporary stuff. And a lot of temporary stuff is okay, it's just not ultimate and can't bear the weight of worship. So if we really believe that Jesus is alive and bodily raised, which is resurrection, we don't think about the resurrection only on Easter. We, we, because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, amen? And every day is a day that Jesus is Lord. So it's a testimony to others that our faith is transforming our lives and, and because we're, we worship. Resurrection is not an obstacle for God. I thought about that. If He created everything and gave it meaning, there's no law of physics over which He does not preside. He presides over the law that says uh, inanimate thing is dead and He can make that inanimate thing alive because it's what He did at the beginning. So today we're going to have a time of commitment. We're going to, uh, the musicians will come and we'll have a song. And I'm going to take my place here in the front of our congregation if there's a need that you have to respond to the message that you have heard today. And you just want to surrender your life to Christ, then this is an opportunity for you to do... Uh... Okay, that's me. It's a little weird. <laughs> I don't know how to make it stop, but this is a, a time where we're going to encourage you, if you would, stand uh, together with us. I'm going to pray for us quickly. I'll be happy to take a moment during our, this is a time of invitation, and to uh, just to pray with you and to help you to make a decision, a, a commitment to follow Jesus. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its truth, and thank you for the reality that you have come here and have given life to us, not just to the world around us and to plant life, but you give spiritual life. And your, and your word says that you'll give that life to anyone who calls on your name. And so we commit ourselves in this time to you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.